Um, looks like everyone's here. All right. Appellant is ready to proceed. You may proceed. Good morning, and may it please the court. David Peters on behalf of the United States of America. The president issued the challenge executive order to address the threats posed to federal contracting by a once-in-a-century pandemic. The order does so by directing agencies to contract only with those entities that agree to comply with certain COVID-19 safety protocols. The order thus falls within the decades-long tradition of executive action taken by presidents of both parties and consistently upheld by the courts that advance the economy and efficiency of federal contracting. The district court recognized that the order bears a close nexus to economy and efficiency, but mistakenly enjoined the order and its implementing materials on other grounds. As to start, if I may, with the order's nexus to economy and efficiency. The question before this court concerns whether the district court abused its discretion when, in December of 2021, it enjoined the executive order based on the record before it. At the time, the order, as the acting OMB director's determination made clear, advanced- Can you raise your voice just a bit, please? Sorry, yes, it advanced the economy of federal contracting. At the time, vaccination was the most effective method to reduce transmission of a deadly and highly virulent disease. Vaccination also provided uh, the best protection for those that uh, contracted the disease from becoming seriously ill and dying. Taken together, those impacts advance the economy efficiency of federal contracting by reducing absenteeism from the federal contractor workforce. <clears throat> the district court straightforwardly understood that this order advanced economy and efficiency and that it outweighed. Oh, counsel, since we're talking about an executive order, what are, what are the effective limitations? What, are, what is the limiting principle on the president's authority? You know, the economy and efficiency test um, is a material limitation on the president's power. Um, so, so could the president require that anyone who works for a government contractor not live in a home with a smoker? Your Honor, it's very difficult to imagine that being a valid executive order because it's not um, particularly work-related in the way that this executive order was. Well, what about obesity? People are, normally they have health problems as a result of obesity. I mean, that's all well-documented. Can the, documented. Can the president require a certain fitness level of all employees of government contractors? Again, Your Honor, it's very difficult to imagine that executive order being sustained, but precisely because... Why not? Uh, the, the, if, it would <clears throat> if it would improve employee health and reduce absenteeism, <clears throat> why is it so hard to imagine? You're, you're, the, those kind of latent health problems that affect contractors and more generally um, have been around for decades and have never posed the kind of significant and acute threats that the pandemic posed. And, and, and that makes good sense. I mean, again, the, the pandemic, as, as you know, <clears throat> experience has shown, um, really posed unique challenges to the everyday work habits of the American people, and in particular into federal contracting. And so the president determined quite reasonably that in the threat of this once in a century pandemic, um, that that is quite different in kind from the kind of late- well, Taking it to its logical conclusion, can the president require uh, an employee or the spouse of an employee <clears throat> to take birth control pills in order to avoid missing time for, for leave, uh, family leave time? No, Your Honor, I don't believe so. Um, you know, as to a spouse, that seems um, qu 
quite divorced from the, the, the contract workplace. You know, here, this executive order only covers uh, certain covered contractors um, who are working on federal contracts or, or those that are um, uh, working in the same place where federal contracting is being done. That the birth control one, Your Honor, might also run into some independent constitutional challenges that aren't implicated in, in this case at all. Um, and, and so, again, you know, throughout uh, you know, the, the seven decades that the executive order has been on the books, you know, presidents have consistently used the, this authority in a way that you know, addresses you know, meaningful limitations and threats. Well, to going, going back to Judge Englehart's very first question, aside from you cited you know, the language, which talks about economy and efficiency, but I mean, give some teeth to that. What, what, what is the meaningful limiting principle that those terms provide? What would be out of bounds? You know, I think, again, something that is directed towards contractors' uh, um, family members would, would be out of bounds. And again, this has to have a close nexus um, to the economy and efficiency of federal contracting. It has to um, advance, as, as this executive order does, and as the district court found, has to advance the, the kind of um, the efficiency with which contracting is done. Um, and, and it makes perfect sense that an executive order that includes a rule of decision saying don't contract um, with those entities that you know fail to adopt policies that will prevent you know late work or work that will be over cost that, that that meaningfully advances. The but those are I noticed that you you said and I think very correctly that those are directed to the contractor. That's a policy directed to the contractor. What instances can you give us where the order is directed to the employees of the contractor. Your Honor, the, this order is directed towards contractors. It, you know, it's, it's, it's frankly directed towards agencies about who they will elect to do contracts. But it applies, I hate to interrupt you, and I appreciate your answer, but it, it applies even to employees who are not working on the government contract, as I understand it. Correct me if I'm wrong. So, so this order is requiring each individual to do something, as opposed to, for instance, a requirement uh, for non-discriminatory hiring practices or compliance with wage and hour so, and so on and so forth. This order goes not to the contractor, but rather to the individuals who work for the contractor. Your Honor, that, that is a difference between this executive order and past executive orders. Um, you know, we would say past executive orders have also reached non-contractors. Um, so the uh, pricing order in Con, for example, controlled wage and pricing um, for contracting employees that were working on federal contractors but also employees that were not working on federal contracts um, and so but, but your your honor is correct this is this order is slightly different um, in the sense that it is directed towards uh, employees are there and, any others that go to the employee require compliance by the individual employee as opposed to the contractor can you think of any other instance your honor we're not aware of a order that fits directly that um, and, and it, it, it makes sense in this context your Honor, I mean, the economy and efficiency determination is inherently contextual. Um, and, and here, you know, as I said, at the time that the executive order was enjoined, vaccination was the most effective tool to reducing transmission and ensuring that those that become ill and miss work um, or become uh, infected do not become seriously ill and miss work. Um, but, but you're right, Your Honor, this, this order is somewhat different than the ones that we've seen in the past. Um, and, but even then, the district court found that it straightforwardly. Um, advanced economy and efficiency. And, and so we think that that determination is correct and that this court should, um, at a minimum, vacate the injunction um, to, to the extent that it, uh, to, to the extent that it, it is conflicting with that. 
I'm having some trouble with your attempt to distinguish this case from NFIB. Uh, Your Honor, there are several differences between this case and the, and the OSHA mandate, which is the, the one at issue in NFIB. Um, you know, first, this isn't a course of regulation on anyone. Uh, this is an order by the president to his um, agencies on how to contract. That's quite different than the OSHA mandate. Um, the OSHA mandate was also promulgated pursuant to delegated power under the Commerce Clause. Here, this is the president exercising authority in a proprietary function. Um, and, and when that, uh, when the government's exercising authority as a proprietor, uh, presidents have much direct, much freer hand, and Congress often delegates authority um, in much broader terms. Um, and then, you know, you're, in addition, this isn't um, uh, an unelected bureaucrat making a determination. This is the president, the most singularly most accountable individual in the government, um, who, who's making the determination, and, and that distinguished it from. You know the, the OSHA case, but also other cases that raise kind of the ma major question, uh, major question principles that 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 our friends on their side cite, um, and and all those make that quite different. And and for that reason, this you know this case is much more similar to the CMS mandate, so uh, Biden v. Missouri, which was decided on the same day. You know there too, um, the the government was acting in its proprietary authority and contracting with Medicare and Medicaid providers, and and the court had no problem determining that major question principles just. Uh, weren't implicated um, under that different context. It, you know, we'd, we'd also point out, Your Honor, that you know, the, the CMS case provides you know, a, a additional guidance into understanding the president's authority here. You know, there too, um, you know, the, the plaintiffs in this case argued um, that, that the secretary's authority was you know, ministerial in nature, um, but, but the, the court had no problem rejecting that as well. And, and here too, Your Honor, this, the president has long been understood to exercise um, broad, direct uh, authority in directing uh, government-wide procurement uh, policies. Uh, if I may, I would just to um, take, take a minute to address the district court's Tenth Amendment holding. Um, so the district court, as I said, enjoined the executive order um, on the ground that it violated the Tenth Amendment, and that's just clearly wrong. Um, where as here, the president is validly exercising a delegation of Article I powers. Um, th there is no violation of the Tenth Amendment, even when that authority or that exercise of power intrudes in an area traditionally reserved to the states. Um, of course, Your Honor. And, but in any event, this isn't an area that is traditionally reserved to the states. This is uh, an order um, from the president telling agencies how to uh, manage their relationship with federal contractors. Um, and that's an inherently federal uh, relationship. Um, and so th there is no Tenth Amendment violation here at all. Um, I, I'd also like to point out, Your Honors, that um, you know, in, in terms of the economy and efficiency determination, the acting OMB director um, made a determination that the costs that would be saved um, would far outweigh, I'm sorry, the, the, yeah, the cost of the federal government would, would be um, from requiring vaccination would far outweigh any cost to contractors. Um, that's borne out um, in the CMS case, where again, the plaintiffs in this case um, were concerned that a, a similar vaccine mandate would uh, cause mass layoffs, but that, that hasn't manifested, and it was perfectly reasonable for the, OMB to term, the acting OMB director to determine in this case that the costs um, would, would, be out, would be certainly outweighed by the benefits um, of the vaccination requirement. Um, 
The district court also enjoined the executive order on the grounds that it was procedurally invalid. We think that's, again, wrong, as every other district court has determined in reviewing these. The OMB, the FAR Council, and the task force abided by all applicable procedural requirements. And so there's just no grounds to determine that there was a procedural violation in any way in this case. And lastly, Your Honor, I think that it's worth noting that the plaintiffs in this case have claimed substantial irreparable harm would flow from the executive order. They haven't supported that determination at all or supported that claim at all by introducing record and the evidence, which is their burden to do so. The plaintiffs claim that if this was orders to go into effect, it would affect things like grant programs to their departments of justice. And there's just no indication that that's true, Your Honor. In fact, the Department of Justice introduced a declaration to the district court that made clear that this didn't apply to grants and it wouldn't apply to the grant that Louisiana and Mississippi have identified as potentially imperiled by it. And so there just is no grounds for an injunction based on any claims of irreparable harm. So let me ask you about the procedural requirements you just touched on. The FAR memo, as I understand it, prompted agency action. Isn't that final? Are you arguing that it's not a final action? It's not a final action, Your Honor. But why would it not be if it prompted agency action? The FAR memo itself, Your Honor, merely provided initial guidance to agencies on how to exercise their own discretion and provided a sample clause that agencies could use if they so wanted to. But unless and until agencies did so, there wouldn't be any legal consequences that would flow from it. The FAR memo itself is not final agency action, and plaintiffs don't have grounds to challenge it based on the APA. If an agency then took some action based on the FAR memo, that might be final agency action that could be challenged. But the plaintiffs haven't brought a challenge to any kind of additional agency action. They are just challenging the FAR memo and the other implementing guidance here. So there is no APA challenge. And for the same reason, the Procurement Policy Act doesn't apply to the FAR memo for much the same reason. And the task force guidance challenge, the Townsend Task Force guidance, similarly fails for the same reason. That doesn't take effect unless and until the OMB director made an affirmative determination that it would advance the economy and efficiency of the federal government. And so on its own, it had no legal force, and therefore it wasn't final agency action. And I just see my time is running out, Your Honor. I would just point out that the district court was wrong to suggest that finality was just one factor when considering review. It's a prerequisite. This court has made that clear over and over again. And so there is just no grounds to reach the question of the FAR memo and the task force guidance. I'll reserve the rest of my time. Thank you, Your Honor. Pelley. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning. Liz Merle on behalf of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Your Honors, the President just about a week ago declared the pandemic was over on national television. This is not really about whether this order advances some reasonable or statutorily authorized objective. It's about the exercise of presidential power in a way that's not authorized by the statute. And seven courts have now agreed that they either issued injunctions or agreed that the injunctions 
were appropriate in this very same matter. So I want to kind of walk through some of the things. I'm going to start with the very first question. What is the declaration that the pandemic is over? What does that have to do with this? I I think it's just in the context of a preliminary injunction and their claims that we don't have. We have irreparable harm, Your Honor. This goes straight to the question of the balance of equities. The president declares the pandemic over, and yet we have $100 billion in contracts between our three states that would be affected by this order. So I think that it specifically goes to their argument that there's no irreparable harm and the balance of equities favor the government. The president's declared the pandemic is over and no, none of the contracting in the, in the United States has collapsed, not in the time that this injunction has been in, in, act, in, in effect or any of the other ones have been in effect. Um, as to the question, Your Honor, about the limiting principle, they haven't given one. In every argument that they've made, in every case that they've made, they have not produced any limiting principle on their theory. And, and, and I would specifically point you to the language of the, of the executive order, which is carried through the other documents. The focus is on creating a healthier workforce generally, which in turn will increase efficiency and economy. If that's their theory, then there is no limit. Everything you mentioned, Judge Englehart, is within, within the scope of the, the president's discretion to control more than one-fifth of the workplace. And I would, I would also point to the more than, because while it captures allegedly or, or purports to capture federal contractors, subcontractors, it also captures very vaguely anybody who comes in contract, contact with them. The nexus between the economy and efficiency, uh, having to demonstrate that nexus, that's not a sufficient limiting principle? No, Your Honor. I think those are very, very broad terms, and they have not given, not in this case and not in any case, any actual limiting principle on the the application of those broad terms. I think you agree that there were some executive orders that are not unconstitutional? Some there are some orders generally they're not in, yes all right so there is some limiting principle that you have in mind I think the limiting principle is it, it comes through the context of the statute and I would agree that past practices may be relevant I just don't think that any of the cases that they've cited actually support their claim that of the broad the breadth of their application of this you're statute. talking about the procurement act when you say the, the procurement act yes sir Yes, sir. So, you know, if you take, if you look at all of the cases that they've cited and all of the cases that were discussed by not only Judge Drell but every other district court, it's not that many. And, and those cases specifically look at, first of all, if the president is doing something that isn't directly correlated to efficiency and economy, then they look at um, other laws. Do other laws permit this? So, if, so in the context of anti-discrimination notices, for example, or anti-discrimination clauses in a contract, those are required by other acts of Congress. There's not, that does not exist here. He's what speci- about something like, as we search for this limiting principle, what about something like uh, the president requiring 
contractors to use green technology so as to be more efficient, more energy, uh, conserving energy in the course of executing their contract with the government. Would that be something you think would fall within the uh, president's authority? I don't think that it would. I think that the, the more attenuated that you get, the, then the less likely it is. Now, I, I call that- That goes to the contractor. I, when I was talking to your opponent, I was asking about uh, individuals, requirements on individuals, and right. he candidly uh, answered my question. So in this case, I'm talking about an, an imposition on the contractor. Why would that not be a valid uh, condition on a government contract? I think you have to look at whether it's inconsistent with other principles in contracting. And so specifically here, you would look at the Competition and Contracting Act. I think that's always relevant, by the way. The Competition and Contracting Act is an overlay. And if you look at, if you go to the government's websites and look at their, their, their detailed regulations in the FAR, Everything in the FAR, everything in the Competition and Contracting Act, everything that's ever happened related to federal contracting specifically pushes toward including more people to compete and allowing more competition for the government so that it drives prices down and efficiency well, is created through an lines, economy. How valid is it to look at what private contractors require if they require, it, like for instance in this case, a vaccine uh, or some other type of, like I gave all the examples before, if a private contractor required it, could the government, in considering its conditions, uh, make a parallel evaluation? Judge Inglehart, in NASA v. Nelson, the Supreme Court did look at what private contractors had done, but specifically the court said that what, that private contractors, that their actions were pervasive. Here, they're not pervasive. The, the government cited to two or three simply to, to say, yeah, hey, some private companies are doing this too. But it's not pervasive. There's never been any evidence in the record that the government supplied in imposing this mandate that there was any pervasive requirement. So I, I, I wouldn't say that it's irrelevant. So you got a definition for pervasive? In that particular situation, Your Honor, there were millions, millions of businesses that required it. So I, I think that whatever that definition is, they didn't provide it here. A handful is not millions. A handful is not pervasive. Being able to point to one or two businesses who did this in their own private, and I would also point out that their private decisions are not the same as the government. They are not constrained by the Constitution. They're not constrained by the statutory authority You'll of the statute. These are some pretty large corporations we're talking about. The ones that they pointed to are a couple. I think Tyson, they appointed to Tyson. They pointed to one or two in the rule. And then I think they pointed to a few more in briefing. So the rule itself doesn't point to very many. And I don't think that it ever seriously contended or gave any genuine voice to the likelihood that there was no power to do this. The government simply said, we have it. They were going to do this. The president said this is part of his six-point plan to vaccinate the, to, to co-opt a state power, by the way. I mean, the president, and to Judge Drell's concern on the 10th Amendment, the president came out on public, te on television and said, 
He was tired of people not getting vaccinated. He was going to use, and I get it, he can use any power that actually is within his power. But this has never, ever, ever happened. And that's why NFIB is, it does president matter. Like this has never, ever, ever happened, or a president has never used power for something like this? The president's never used power like this. Both are probably true. But we have had pandemics. We have had other disasters. We've had wars. This has never happened in any of those contexts. And the president, and I think that you do have to take into account what he said and what his purpose is. And, and I would say that I call this, if you give a mouse a cookie logic, the president thinks that he can do anything he wants as long as he can cabinet somehow leading to economy and efficiency. That's not what the statute permits because that would lead to delegation problems. It simply cannot be that he has such a broad authority that he can commandeer all contractors, their subcontractors, and anybody who comes in contact with them, even if they're at home. He did, the FAQs capture somebody who's a federal contractor even when they're at home. So they still have to get vaccinated too, even though that's, I think he said that how, you're the residents, he, 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 I guess, gave us some free pass by saying that his order didn't extend into our residences, and then the FAQ did. So the, the scope of this order was always intended to be part of his plan to vaccinate the workplace, and they've never, none of the cases that the government has cited support the expansive interpretation or application of this statute. In fact, every decision I think that's come since then has been contrary to it. And, and, and even the CMS case, I think, falls in that category because there were specific language that directed the government to address health and safety, at least in some contexts, and I don't necessarily agree with the outcome in that case, but we're stuck with it, at least for now. But even there, the, the, the Supreme Court looked for specific language that had been applied by CMS in a specific way in the past. You do not have that here. There's one case that I would draw to your attention. It's, non, it's not binding on this court. It's a non-published case, but it is in the, it is in, it's a Texas case, um, the Rung case. It's at 2016 Westlaw 8188655. And I would just point you, I think it's, um, it is an application of a restriction on the Procurement Act. What's in, the caption again? Uh, it is Rung, hang on one second, Your Honor, I'll give you the full caption. Associated Builders and Contractors of Southeast Texas versus Rung, and it's at 2016 Westlaw 8188655. It's an Eastern District, Texas case, and it's not reported in FSA. But it relates to the Obama Executive Order 13673, which purported to increase efficiency and cost savings in work performed by parties who contract with the federal government by ensuring they understand and comply with labor laws. And there had been some cases that dealt with labor laws, posting notices, for example, anti-discrimination laws. But this order went well beyond that. And I think that's what's happening here. This order goes well beyond any other application, and there's no other statutory hook. And I think that's key to all of the other cases, is that there is some other statutory hook that they can at least point to that would justify 
the more moderate actions that the president ordered like posting notices in the workplace distill for me again under the procurement act where you would draw the line on requirements the president can impose can impose on federal contractors where would we draw the line well i think the cases would support at least some line drawing where you can point to another federal statute that imposes an obligation on the contractor or the person so for so anti-discrimination laws for example you can point to a number of other laws that bind the contractor and that bind the government and and so they said here's some things you need to do and i think the scope of the action is also relevant so that's a limiting principle how far reaching is it here every indication shows that it was intended and that language did and then the agency action did capture as many people as possible within its grasp that's what the president said he wanted to do and that's what they did and so there was no one who was really exempt and they they bent over backwards to make it ambiguous to make it even less likely that you could find somebody that would be exempt by design there, there weren't any religious exemptions or medical exemptions there purported to be religious exemptions and then the faqs didn't provide for any actual mechanism for accommodating a religious exemption and that's why we had testimony to that effect to explain how difficult this was to navigate our testimony largely went to our standing so when they said there were religious exemptions, they didn't mean that. Is that, that what you're saying? They did not provide any guidance or any direct assistance to states to apply them. Did anybody get one? I, don't, I, I couldn't answer whether anybody got one. Certainly there have been religious exemptions that have been granted um, under other circumstances like the CMS mandate. Um, in this case, we had testimony through Megan Bro, the, um, the, the UL lawyer who was denied a religious exemption because the, uh, the university leadership did not believe that there was, they could grant one and then consistently allow her ever to be in contact with anybody on the campus anywhere that might come in contact with a federal contractor or subcontractor. So they made it exceedingly difficult to navigate any kind of exemption, again, that was by design. Um, I, I would like to address very quickly um, the agency action argument, because I think that, the, that the Judge Drell very clearly found that there was both agency action and that the agency action was arbitrary and capricious. Um, and, and he looked at the totality of the circumstances. He also looked at what they were doing to execute the order and, and I think he very reasonably found that there was, in fact, agency action and that the government was being directed to go out, go out and do this now, and that these deadlines are probably the most key feature of this action because there was no real mechanism to get out of it. It created a Hobson's choice, which he very specifically found in his ruling, um, and, and it didn't give any flexibility to the contractor to do anything other than what the government had said and that was put this clause in your contract and then we'll tell you later what it means and we might change what it means too by the way you just agreed 
to whatever we tell you we want you to do. So it was a very broad directive to change the contracts, change them now, and change every contract that you can try and force them to, to change. I think that's agency action, and, and the, 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 um, the judge took the pragmatic approach to finality, which is legally permissible. And so I would, I would close with this, unless you have more questions. This court can affirm based on any ground that is supported by the record. There's ample evidence in this record to support the preliminary injunction. Other courts have found that based on similar evidence and similar records. We had live testimony that he found very, very persuasive, specifically Dr. Henderson. And, and so there's no basis at this stage to reverse his injunction. And as to the, the, the argument that the balance of equities or that there's no irreparable harm, I would just want to point out that there's a typo in the order because the order points to $100 million in contracts. It's $100 billion. And that comes from the government's own website. SAM.gov has, has a listing of all government contracts, and you can just run searches by state. And that's what we did, and that's how we came up with that number. But it's an enormous amount of money, and that's why he used this power. So, um, Before you slip away, <clears throat> the other side argues that the major questions doctrine doesn't apply because the authority here is delegated to the president who's politically accountable, and you say what? I don't think accountability is the sole decider about whether the major questions doctrine applies. The court in West Virginia versus EPA looks at, in every major questions doctrine, the CDC case, the Alabama Realtors case, West Virginia versus EPA, NFIB, all of these cases look to the statutory language, and the president can't exercise power that he doesn't have in the first place. So the real question is the scope of this, what does the statute authorize, and does it go so far, can it be viewed as unbounded as the government argues that it is here? Our answer to that is no. Judge Drell's answer to that was no. Seven other courts' answers to that has been no. Thank you, Your Honors. Rebuttal. Thank you. I'd like to start, if I may, with Judge Willard's question about the limits. Um, it, it's unclear what limit, um, what kind of power at all um, plaintiffs think the president has under the statute. And they suggest that it has to be some kind of affirmative statutory grant. No court has ever held that. And to the contrary, uh, this court has upheld, or this court has upheld an executive order that, expe that expressly went beyond um, Title VII's requirements. Um, in the U.S. Uh, v. Mississippi Power and Electric Company, the court upheld um, an executive order that um, uh, required certain anti-discrimination provisions. And those anti-discrimination provisions required, amongst other things, affirmative action, which went beyond Title VII. So it can't be the case that the Procurement Act's grant of authority has to be tied to some other statutory authority, that that just doesn't make much sense. Um, I'd also, uh, like to point out, Your Honor, that it is relevant that private employers have adopted similar measures. Um, that, that's a strong indication that those CEOs thought that economy and efficiency would be advanced by adopting something like a vaccine mandate. It makes sense that the president, acting as the CEO of the government, took additional steps uh, in, in that direction. Um, 
On the major questions doctrine, uh, Judge Willett, I, it's telling that in all of those cases, you have um, an, an, a bureaucrat exercising <clears throat> delegated commerce, power, commerce Clause authority, whereas here you have the president exercising authority in a proprietary function. And when Congress uh, legislates um, pursuant to its spending power, it often delegates broadly. You know, appropriations uh, legislation is often done um, in a uh, in, in quite broad terms. Um, and, and so it makes sense that the font of authority uh, has a different outcome. Um, on, on the accommodations, uh, <coughs> the statute, uh, let me say that. I just note that the clock is not running. I, I know it says I well. guess they're going to hold it till you score the winning touchdown. And then <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to sit up here and talk uh, as much as you will have me. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, uh, just a, a few more points, Your Honor. Um, it, under the, the, the plaintiff's theory um, it, it, of what this statute allows the presidents to do, the, the, the plaintiffs seem to think that um, Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson were wrong when they issued executive orders um, aimed at reducing anti-discrimination, that President Carter misunderstood this statute when he issued orders regarding um, price stability um, and the energy crisis, that uh, George Bush was wrong when he issued orders about um, uh, immigration and labor rights, um, and that courts who consistently upheld those orders were wrong in their understanding of the statute, and that Congress, when it recodified this provision in 2002, was wrong um, and, and in light of all that. Um, and, and that just doesn't make much sense. That kind of long-standing interpretation is powerful evidence of what this statute means. And, and we think it's, um, we'd urge the court to, to hesitate before you know, rendering all of that invalid. We, we think that'd be a problem. Ms. Merle led off by <clears throat> saying the government, you, have never produced a limiting principle. And in response to Governor Engelhart's hypos, um, you just thought they were a little too outlandish. And I just wonder, aside from thinking, aside from something striking you as far-fetched, what is the government's articulated limiting principle? Your, the, the orders must bear a close nexus to the economy and efficiency of federal contracting. Um, and, and that courts, sounds pretty sweeping. Your Honor, courts, you know, the district court here. That seems pretty limitless, not limiting. Your you know, this, this statute has been enforced for seven decades. The kind of parade of horribles that plaintiffs imagine have never come to be. Um, we think that's, again, powerful evidence that this limitation has real bite. Um, and, it, and, it, and again, your Honor, courts have consistently understood that to be the appropriate test, applied it in a meaningful way. and, and where they found that an order didn't bear a close nexus, they invalidated the order. Um, so we think it's an entirely workable um, standard that does limit president's authority. And again, that's borne out by the, the history of the statute where you know, th this order has been used to achieve um, important aims um, that improve you know, the contracting operations. Counsel, it may not be in the record, but since I asked your opponent uh, do you, are you aware of any religious exemptions that have been granted? Um, Your Honor, I, I'm not aware of a single uh, of an individual instance. The, um, in part because this executive order was joined before the enforcement deadline went into effect, and so it's unclear whether um, uh, any, any accommodations were processed. Um, the, the executive order and the, the, the task force guidelines make clear that um, 
employers had had brought authority to determine the validity of religious or medical accommodation and take steps whatever steps they deemed appropriate to accommodate those individuals so to the you know extent that there is some concerns about employers failure to do so that is an issue with the employers that's I don't think bears on the validity of the executive order which this order was enjoined right away in December have a sample size precisely your honor there's just this was enjoined nearly a month before the deadlines what are we if anything to make of the president's declaration that the pandemic is over I see my time is running out my extended time is running out but if I just may you know the the question before this court is whether the district court abuses discretion in December of 2021 when it enjoined the order for the reasons we've explained we think it hasn't so we think that it did abuse its discretion the threat posed to federal contracting by the pandemic has certainly evolved since then to the extent that in any way undermines the director's determination regarding the economy and efficiency the appropriate response of this court would be to vacate the injunction and let the district court in the first instance determine whether you know any of that determination has been overtaken by developments that would I think we think that would be the appropriate steps thank you what will take this matter under advisement